The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Monica Cora. Monica is the author of Kill the Silence, A Survivor's Life Reclaimed. In 2009, college sophomore and track star and Olympic hopeful Monica Cora was grabbed by three men on her way home from a party and brutally raped. Within hours of being released... Monica resolved that she would not be a victim. Vic- victim, she was going to be a survivor. Welcome to the show, Monica. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Well, I guess you have done just that. You are not a victim. You are a survivor. Um, and I think one of the things, you, you were at school at the time. Uh, this was, uh, you were going to Southern Methodist University, as I understand it. That uh, is right. Yep, when the rape occurred. So, Okay, this happens to you, uh, you know, the statistics are not good even for females who are raped to even report rapes, uh, and I have one statistic here and then I'm going to let you talk, but a large percentage of sexual assaults, upwards of 80% for female college students like you, go unreported, and 15 of every 16 rapists go free. Um, why am I not surprised, but it's a horrific statistic, so... Um, Let's hear your story. I mean, you wrote the book. Yeah, yeah. So to go back in time first to 2009, that's when it all happened, where my world suddenly was turned upside down. Um, It was a normal night right before Christmas. Myself and a few friends, we were studying for finals. Uh, Finals were right around the corner. But then we received um, an invitation to the student athlete party. And we decided that, well, okay, let's go and socialize for a little bit. We need a little break anyways. So it was myself, two of my girlfriends, uh, and another friend that came to pick us up. So we drove to this party, stayed for a few hours, but then we got tired and we started to think about our next morning's run. So our friend, he came back to pick us up. And he called me and told me that I am parked right outside the apartment. And we saw his car as we walked out and... We were just tired, ready for bed. We were three girls walking hands in hands towards his car. But suddenly, another car came pulling up next to his. And I just heard a lot of screaming. And suddenly, I have someone grabbing me from behind. And I just felt cold metal next to my head. Um, I realized quickly that something bad was about to happen. And it became was even the cold more metal, to me. Monica, was the cold metal that you felt, was that a gun? It was. It was a gun. And I I just saw how my friends reacted, the, the look in their eyes, and how they desperately tried to take a hold of me, to, to drag me uh, from these men. But then they pointed the gun towards them, so there was nothing that they could do. They ha- had to let go of me. And the men, they, they pulled me into a van. The gun was still placed next to my head. Um, So I realized quickly what was about to happen. It was three men in that van and a gun, and they stripped me of my clothing right away. And that's when it started the attack. They started to rape me, one of them at a time, two at a time, three at a time. And for me, during that night, every second was just so long. What was going through your mind at the time? I mean, did you think you were going to be killed? I mean, was that your, I mean, why all, I mean, this is horrific what they're doing to you, but at the same time, is it the fear that they're going to murder you? Exactly. That was, that was my focus, that I was constantly trying to be aware of where the gun was, because that was my biggest fear. I, I realized I can get through anything. I can survive anything but not a gun, not a bullet. 
So that was my focus. Where is the gun? And I just kept begging the man, just please, please don't kill me. And I remember I said that, take, take whatever you want from me, but just don't kill me. Um, let me, let me leave. Let me get out of this uh, with still being alive. And what was their response? I mean, were they responding to you or were you just, I mean, you know, you're, I, I assume, crying or screaming or whatever you're doing, um, are they telling you to be quiet or, you know, what are, what are they telling you to do? Yeah, so, so that was the thing. Um, I realized quickly that screaming and trying to fight them, that would only make the situation worse because when I tried to do that, they used even more force to do what what they wanted to do to me. So I realized quickly that, that that's not how I can can deal with this situation. And, and my body just really, it froze. I didn't do anything. Um, but they just kept telling me over and over, give us what we want, otherwise we will kill you. Um, so that was their threat throughout the whole night. How long were you there? How long were you in that van? At that time, it, it just felt like forever. But I heard afterwards during the trial that it was about two hours. Two hours? Mm-hmm. Well, two hours in that van being attacked by these men, it would seem to me would be like, uh, I mean, an eternity. I mean, and at, at any time did you feel like, I, I mean, now we're going to get into that at the end of the show. I mean, you help you have programs to help other women in similar positions, but... Uh, or to help them to protect themselves so they don't perhaps can get away from being in those that that kind of a situation but you know for two two hours is a long time and and did you ever think that maybe you did you ever pass out did you um you know like you yourself i assume you just went into some kind of a a zone i you know i don't want to put words into your mouth but like that's a very very long time to be having these three men attacking you and raping you and Brutalizing. Right, and and it was because um, I didn't I didn't pass out. I but I was I think I was hyper focused. I was um, trying to protect myself. Um, I had to try to just let go of my own body and and distance myself from it from what was going on. Um, but my mind, my thoughts were just racing, and it was almost a constant battle in my own head. Um, the question if they were going to kill me, and that's what I thought for the longest time. But also this other part of me that told me that just just hold on, this is not the day that you're supposed to die. So it was, that was my thoughts and my focus the whole night. Just, just try to do whatever you can to survive. But every second, as I said, just felt so long, so long. What do you think in terms of what you did, which you saved your own life, because you're here to tell your story, Obviously, so you did the the right thing to stay alive. I mean, and so what do you think? The right. One, yeah. What was so, the one? Yeah. Go ahead. One thing that. So, so that that's one of the things that that I know I, I struggled with a bit in the aftermath because I've been an athlete my whole life. I've been I've been used to fighting physically for what I want, and I've been used to pushing through pain. And in the van that night. I had this freeze response. I, I didn't. I didn't fight them. I didn't. But I think looking back now, and now I can. I can see and look back at it and think clearly about it. That that was the only way to get through this. That's what our bodies and mind will do to us in a situation like this. It's fight or flight. And in that situation, the only right thing to do was to fight, to freeze, and to just try to hold on to survive. Do you think that was instinctual? I mean, you said you're an athlete and, I, and you were uh, an Olympic hopeful. I mean, a really strong athlete. Um, so do you, I mean, do you think that your response was something that was, would come naturally to someone or that was something that, you know, you did, uh, you realized what you had to do as a result of you have, you know. No, I, I think absolutely that's a natural response in a situation like this. When you're in shock, when something like this happens, I think that is a natural response. So because, because for me, naturally, it would have been, uh, I would have fought. I would have used my physical force, strength to fight them. But um, 
something told me and I realized there in that van that that's not the way to respond to this situation. So you were aware of that and you obviously didn't start fighting back because it would seem to me, it would be, I mean, obvious, it would be impossible to fight back, I mean, three men who are attacking you. Um, so then what happened? You were there for two hours. What happened after that? Did they leave you there? Did they throw you out of the van? Yeah, so that's what they did. After about two hours, they placed duct tape in front of my eyes and they pushed me out of the van. Could you see their faces? Were you able to identify them? Yes, I did. I did see their faces throughout the whole whole night, throughout the rape. They didn't. They didn't cover my eyes until the moment where they pushed me out of the van. So you are a you are a survivor. You're not a victim. Exactly. Um, yeah. Okay. So and you're describing the rape, and obviously in that case you are a survivor. Next step. Then what happened? You you know what did you do after right. you so, yeah. Right after they pushed me out, you know, I was in this state. I was in shock. Um, so I was, I was scared, and I was thinking that every person that I would meet would be a rapist. Um, so I had to try to, to calm down in a way and try to figure out a way to, to get back home. Um, so that was how I responded to it first. I just thought to myself, I need to find my way back home. But I realized quickly that I, I was lost. I had no idea where I was at. I had never been in that area before. I didn't recognize anything. So I realized that I need to ask someone for help. But that was tough because I was still in the state of shock and I was, I was scared. So it took me a while to compose myself and to find the strength to actually go up to, to the doors, to the houses next to the street and, and knock on them to see if someone there could help me. But were, were they, they were willing still... to? Well, two things. I mean, Monica, were they willing to help? Number one, you know, a strange woman comes and knocks on the door, and, and uh, that can be scary even for the people who, you know, are behind the door. But what about exactly. your girlfriends? Had they reported it, or had they done anything and notified the police, or were they looking for you? Right. So they were because, of course, they they saw everything that happened, and and my friend that came to pick us up. He tried to drive after the van right away, but it just took off too fast, so he lost it. It was out of sight. Um, but they went straight to the police and reported the crime. So the police was out looking for me just after a few minutes after I was kidnapped. All right, so they were looking for you. You were going, what, to one door? Did you have to, how did you, did anybody open their door for you when you were at, looking for help? Mm-hmm. So I, I knocked on several doors, but it was it was still in the middle of the night, so no one opened. So I understood that I had to come up with a different plan. Um, and, of course, I had these cars passing all the time, so I figured that that is my only solution, even though that was my biggest fear at that moment, to try to stop a car. I had just been released from one, so I just pictured another rapist in every car that drove past. So it took me a while to, to find the strength to do that. But eventually, I was able to walk next to the street and ask for help. It took a while, though, before before a car finally stopped. Um, and a car finally stopped. A man came out. And to me, of course, I, I freaked out again. And I, I thought that he was another rapist. So I took off running in the opposite direction. But he just screamed after me, just, please, I am here to help you. I know that you've been through something traumatic, and I won't, I won't step any closer, but just stay on a distance, and I will contact the police, and you'll be safe, safe soon. And that's what happened. Uh, a few minutes later, police cars came pulling in. Uh, I had a helicopter above me, and at that point, I realized that I've, I've been saved. I survived the night. And, and you did, obviously, more. You survived the night, and uh, you went on to, and well, this is what I want to talk about, um, the trial. Um, because, I mean, it, uh, oftentimes I think the trial for the person who has been the, who has been the victim and or survivor, uh, they, they end up, particularly with women, end up blaming the incident on the, or the rape or the attack on the woman rather than on those who perpetrated the crime. Was that your experience? Exactly, yeah. So, so I experienced all of that 
questioning um, that we know takes place after incidents like this. And, and that is, it's really sad because as a victim, you have people questioning, what were you wearing? Why were you out late at night? Had you been drinking alcohol? And it's, it doesn't matter. It's never the victim's fault. Rape is rape. It's a violent crime. And there's no excuse for doing something like that. And, of course, yes, I experienced all of those questions as well. But I was, I was lucky in the sense that my offenders, they were found only three days later. And they are all now in prison. It was three separate trials, and two of them received lifetime, one of them 25 years. And with that, I felt like I, I received um, final justice, in a way, through that. Uh, Monica, did you know them? Did you know of them? Did they know of you? Were they somebody, was this repeat behavior? Were they, had, had they been in jail for assault or, uh, you know, I don't want, or was this the first time or was it all different because there were three of them? Right. So um, I didn't know they, that they were strangers. They were illegals. Um, one of them I know had been in and out for prison for, for 12 years. The other two didn't have any crimes like this um, on their record at all, but they were illegals. Um, so, yeah. So they had different histories. Um, they and, did. Yeah, they had very different histories. And uh, what would you, you know, now as an, I mean, you, you've been a, a victim, a survivor, and now you have, you are a certified advocate for rape victims in the, what, the Dallas Area Rape Crisis Center uh, volunteer training program, and then you have your own organization, the Monica Cora Foundation. Uh, what, what do you do uh, in the Monica Cora Foundation? What does that do? What's yeah. the mission? So our main goal is to just create an awareness to this issue of rape and abuse in society. As we mentioned, um, a lot of victims feel um, shame and guilt after experiencing rape, and that is wrong. So I think we really need to address this as an issue, and we need to become aware that often what we do as a society, we ask all of these questions that leaves victims with the feelings of game, of blame and guilt. We need to change that. We need to talk about it. We need to focus on this as a violent crime as it is. And really the key is openness. We need to talk about it, and we need to stand together to fight it. But to be able to do that, we need to create the awareness of it. Well, so how do you create that awareness? I mean, because I think, you know, just what you're saying, you know, as a social worker, and and I've worked with victims of violent crimes, and I think one of the things when it's rape, people associate rape with sex. Like you said, they're asking you, what were you wearing? I mean, which has nothing to do with anything. It's a violent attack. It's aggressive. It's brutal. Um, And so women, I think, do feel guilty because... Well, it's sex, and uh, I allow. I mean, you uh, feeling guilty, like maybe I, I brought her on myself. I feel like I, if you know, if I had done such and such, the rape wouldn't have occurred. So you got to get rid of all that stuff. How do you do that uh, specifically? Exactly. So it's a lot about education and understanding that that rape is not motivated by sex at all. It's about power and control. So the education part of it is so important. Um, What I share in my book and through public speaking, we are several speakers that travel to speak and to really create this awareness and try trying to educate people about what what is rape and what can we do to fight it as a violent crime. And do you go around the country? I mean, and are there, you know, I'm curious as to what kinds of responses you get from, I mean, you speak to, I assume, families, victims, schools. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so well, yeah. Go ahead. It's been a lot. Yeah, on universities across the country, with the military, we've been speaking a lot, and uh, different con- conferences. Um, so it's um, the message that we give is, of course, tailored to, towards the um, people that we speak to, but it's all about creating an awareness, and also I focus a lot on on the time afterwards as a victim when we experience something traumatic in life and, and not only rape but other other traumatic events as well what can we do to overcome it what are the things we can do to help ourselves and how can we be able to open up and ask other for, others for help because that's such an important part when you experience something traumatic to not feel like you're in it all alone 
but to ask others for help and to to stand strong together through something like this. Yeah, I think that's really important. Like you said, don't get consumed by shame and guilt and self-blame. You need to to get out there and be, as you're saying, proactive and get people that will support you, family, friends, teachers, whoever. Um, what do we do for young girls? I mean, is there any way that we can help them to protect them, themselves? And at what age do we do that? Right. I think that should start early on. We know that when... When young adults go into high school, middle school even, that they might meet situations they're uncomfortable with. And I think follow your gut, follow your heart, and and talk openly about challenges at home in the family and understand that if your gut tells you that this situation I'm not comfortable with, go after that, listen to that feeling because that is often right. So back off if you're in a situation that you're not comfortable with. And and I really want to encourage boys and girls to stand up for each other. When you see something that's not right, tell people. Tell people off and support each other. And I think it's important. We have to do whatever we can to, to stay safe. So never never walk alone. Always be with friends. I always want to encourage people to do that. But on the other hand, you were with friends. Look, and it still happened to you. I'm thinking about the situation you were in, right? It was the you and your girlfriend, and there was nothing that you could do. I mean, I, I'm you know. So even if you are with friends, um, and as you say, don't walk alone. Um, it it still can happen to you. But I think one thing that you mentioned, you said, go with your gut. Like if you're, and let's take middle school, for example. If you find yourself in a situation where it doesn't feel comfortable, well, what kinds of situations would that be for, say, a middle school or middle schools, what, from 12 to 14? Right. So that, that can be people that are approaching you, maybe people that, that you don't know, and they ask you uncomfortable questions or they make you feel uncomfortable in a way. They get too close. Um, then Then tell them off or just Get away from the situation. I, I think that is, is the most common situation like that when you, you meet a stranger that you don't know that, that get too close into your private life. That, that's not normal. And I think that's important to, to just back off from that right away. Monica, you were attacked by strangers, but what do you say to those who are attacked by people that they know, either somebody that they may have dated or somebody who is a family member or a teacher or because that's a different is that or is that a different kind of a situation what do you do right so i always say rape is rape it's a crime and no matter if it's a stranger or someone that you already know i always want to encourage people to to try to talk to someone talk to a trusted friend or a family member get their opinion because they will often see it more clearly than what you're able to yourself. Because we, we know as victims, we, we're often left with feelings of, of blame and guilt. But if you talk to someone that loves you and cares about you, they will tell you that this was wrong, this was awfully wrong. So I always encourage people to do that. Don't, don't just be in it alone, but ask people for advice and, and talk to someone. Did you get that kind of support initially from your friends? And I have to ask you, your friends who couldn't do anything to help you, how did they feel? You know, when you were attacked and you were put in the van, what, what, you know, what was the reaction? Did they feel guilty? Did they feel like they could have or should have done something? Right. I, I think that's important to remember in a case like this, too, that, yes, I was the victim, but I wasn't the only victim that night. There's so many people that that are left with negative feelings and emotions after something like this. I know that my friends have been struggling. My family's been struggling. There's a lot of people that are affected by this. So that's important to remember. But it's also important then to stand together and to be open and talk about it instead of distancing yourself from others in your life and to try to just remain strong on your own. So I think that was the key for both myself and my friends, that we were able to talk to each other afterwards. They were able to tell me how they felt and how, how they did feel guilty for not saving me, as they, as they told me, that we were able to, to talk through that together. It was a lot of healing in that. 
What do you say to to, to uh, someone who's been brutally attacked like you were, who doesn't get the support uh, either from family or friends or from anybody? I mean, they need to have some place to turn to. Would that be something like your foundation, the Monica Cora Foundation dot org? By the way, that's the website. Yes, absolutely. Reach out. Yeah, do some research online. There's so many groups out there that can help you. Just send an email and someone will be there to help you. There's a lot of professionals. I I always advise people to to go and see a psychologist or a counselor. We know that there's a lot of help in that, but just just talk to someone. There's always someone out there that want to listen and that wants to help you. Yeah, I guess the key thing and one of the messages I'm hearing from you is, don't hide. Don't feel ashamed. Don't pretend that it didn't happen because there are really horrific repercussions for doing that, I mean, ment- mentally and, uh, and even physically. You really need to connect. Isn't that what you're saying? You need exactly. To, yeah. You really need the support. Um, now, your book, Kill the Silence, or Survivor's Life Reclaimed, you can buy that online. Amazon, bookstores everywhere. Uh, but it, and Now, I have the two websites, one that I mentioned, monicacorafoundation.org or just monicacora.org. That's another website to go to, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and any others that you suggest in terms of, you know, we have about a minute left, like for listeners to go to or information or if, if something or they – or if they are somebody who knows of a friend or a family member who has been attacked, who isn't dealing with it in the way in a healthy way, that they can kind of jump in and help. Right, and I think that's important to remember. If you know someone that's been through something traumatic, um, don't think that you have to say all the right things, that you have to do all the right things. Don't take on that pressure and think that you suddenly have to become a psychologist. Because there's professionals out there that can take care of that. But just continue to be your friend. Continue to be a family member. And just be there and listen. And show that you're there if they will need you. Um, I think that is the most important thing. The worst that you can do, even though it's tough to to know what to do or to say, it's so much worse to to create a distance. It's so much better to just open up and and say, "I'm, I'm here for you. Give a hug. Say I'm here from you. That's that's all you need, and just listen. Well, Monica, Monica Cora, thanks so much for being on the show this morning and sharing your story. And uh, you can get Monica's book, as I said, at Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. Kill the silence, a survivor's life reclaimed. Thank you very much for for being here today. Thank you. Uh, we're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is attorney Molly Gill. Uh, Molly is the, well, her title, she, has, she is with the, I've got all this, hold on a second, is the Commissioner on the District of Columbia Sentencing and Criminal Code Revision Commission and Government Affairs Council for Families Against Mandatory Minimums. So it, let's say it's short for FAM, F-A-M-M. Uh, she's the expert, and she's going to be talking to us today uh, about uh, an incident that happened that's uh, in response to teen sexting. Two high school students face legal action after being charged sexual exploitation, uh, leaving many families with unsettled emotions. Apparently, these two t- teenagers were charged with sexting, uh, which is a felony, a criminal charge. Uh, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Molly. Thanks for having me. It's important this to discuss this important topic. It, it definitely is. This just happened recently, I guess, in the beginning of September. Um, and I guess sexting, is that a very common thing that goes on between teenagers or among teenagers? I mean, I know we had the Anthony Weiner incident and, and other ones, but uh, first of all, let's define what is sexting. Teenagers do it, but the problem is, I guess, that the it's, it is a felony, which I didn't know, um, and I'm sure a lot of others, uh, parents, et cetera, don't know that either, and the kids, uh, and so then all of a sudden they get caught and they find themselves uh, accused of uh, engaging in criminal behavior and the consequences to that. It sounds horrific. Yes. Um, most people are not aware that sexting can get you in an awful lot of trouble in the criminal justice system. Uh, including felony charges, including lifetime registration as a sex offender, and here's basically how it happens usually. Let's imagine that you have an 18-year-old son who is dating a 16-year-old girlfriend. They are um, uh, fooling around, as teenagers will want to do. They take some naked photos of each other. Um, they text them to each other. Um, perhaps the boyfriend, um, you know, texts it to a friend to show off, um, being a young, impetuous a young man and not, of course, thinking of the future consequences of this, um, your son can now be charged with uh, production of child pornography and distribution of child pornography, both of which carry lengthy mandatory minimum prison sentences, as well as require uh, sometimes lifetime registration as a sex offender. And, um, of course, then, uh, you know, not only does he deal with the issues of uh, registering as a sex offender, and the limitations that that puts on his life, but he also now has a felony record that he will carry around probably for the rest of his life that will make it hard for him to get jobs, get school loans, get admitted to college, uh, get certain benefits um, if he needs them later on in life from um, government. Uh, so these, uh, you know, young, uh, impetuous acts um, at the, the height of sort of sexual experimentation um, even if they're consensual, can land your youngsters in a lot of trouble. So, Molly, but how often, what are the statistics, or do you have statistics on that? How often does that happen? First of all, I guess the estimate of how many teenagers are sexting, that's number one, but then number two, how many are caught and really get themselves in this, you know, are accused of a felony and end up or in, in jail, I guess, or is, is how prevalent is it? Well, I've not seen data on how many teenagers are engaged in sexting. I don't know if it's um, an extremely prevalent activity. Um, and I've not seen data on how many of these cases are brought every year. But I think it, uh, it's illuminating to realize that um, about 20 states have um, recognized the un- that this is an unintended consequence of their um, child pornography laws, their child exploitation laws and have actually repaired their statutes to um, exclude sexting from those statutes. Um, so it's a big enough problem that lawmakers in, in 20 states have taken notice and recognized, you know, what well, we really don't want to be um, punishing young people this way for uh, things that either uh, shouldn't be uh, crimes at all or things that can be handled in a, in a much different way um, without prison and, and registry as a sex offender. 
You said that you gave the example of a 16-year-old and an 18-year-old. Well, what about if it's a two 18-year-olds or two 17-year-olds? Does that make a difference? Well, the North Carolina case was basically a 17-year-old and a 16-year-old, and um, they uh, were boyfriend and girlfriend sending um, photos uh, to each other, and under North Carolina law, that was considered sexual exploitation, which kind of raises the question of who are you exploiting if you're engaging in consensual activity? With what minor are you supposedly exploiting? And the theory of the case is that the minor you are exploiting is yourself. When you take a photo of your naked self and uh, if you're underage and send it to someone else um, underage, um, you have exploited yourself as a child and now you can be held uh, guilty and convicted of child exploitation. So there's a certain point at which this does sort of become Kafkaesque and we start just scratching our heads going, what? Well, all right. So what it, you know, we're talking about you, the sending of these pictures, what constitutes also, like, specifically sexting? Is that in your, like, if you're sending pictures of yourself or your boyfriend or girlfriend and you both consent to it, but in your underwear or topless or bottomless or, I mean, are there very specific laws in relation, you know, in regard to what kind of pictures they are, what kind of photos they are? Well, well, indeed, part of of the problem is that um, there is no... uh, necessarily a statute called sexting, and this is, you know, it shall be a crime to sext. Um, Usually it is uh, more uh, sort of vaguer uh, criminal language. Um, It is is a crime to um, produce or distribute or um, even possess um, images of a minor in um, that are, you know, sometimes the language is in a sexually explicit uh, position or um, in a, you know, behaving, engaged in sexual conduct or uh, in or an image that is intended to solicit, um, you know, sexual excitement sometimes is, is other language. So it, it, this is obviously fairly, fairly broad um, and nude photos would qualify, um, perhaps a very suggestive partially nude photo would qualify um, and uh, we sort of start getting into the realm of uh, the famous Supreme Court justice who said, I can't define pornography except I know it when I see it. Yeah, I guess what I, you know, I'm listening to you and it's, uh, it's really frightening because it's so easy to do it, number of sexting. I mean, it's, obviously it's, it's very simple. And yet, how many young people and or their parents are going to be or are familiar with the laws? I mean, aren't, it, it, it seems to me it's... Um, it's almost impossible. As you say, the, you know, there are different statutes in different states. Twenty states have one kind of statutes and the others have others. I mean, how do parents familiarize themselves with it? I was reading an article about uh, this particular case, and one of the, I guess it was a psychiatrist who recommended that parents have to be aware of what the laws are and the consequences and tell their children. But how many parents can do that or know that? I mean, it, it just seems somewhat impossible. Yeah, I'm a lawyer, and and understanding the law, even with my law degree, can be challenging at times. Um, And so non-lawyer parents, who are, of course, very busy being parents, uh, are are really up against a challenge. And I think uh, the issue that this should raise for us as a society is, does this really need to be a crime? And uh, do we really need to be prosecuting young people in this position? Um, We can't, I, I think it's, unreasonable to expect everyone to know what the law is all the time. Um, that might have been fine, um, you know, 100 years ago when there were, you know, just a few dozen laws in the books, but now states have thousands of laws on the books, and uh, no one can be expected to know everything that is and is not a crime. So I think uh, we need to sort of reassess um, uh, number one, I mean, number one, in all fairness, write our laws very carefully. Be very clear about exactly what conduct you were talking about and what ages it applies to and what circumstances it applies to. And lawmakers have a responsibility to do that. And then um, also, pro- you know, prosecutors and law enforcement have a real op- um, responsibility to, to recognize, you know what, some of these cases are, are really about uh, better parenting um, and maybe some school intervention, maybe some community intervention, and they don't need to end up in a courthouse. 
And um, that's really where mandatory minimum sentences, which is what we work on, um, that's really where they become very problematic is that um, if you have a mandatory minimum sentence, you are not giving anybody flexibility in the system, not the judge, not the prosecutor, to um, do uh, something other than just send someone to prison for a very long period of time for conduct that, frankly, probably doesn't merit a prison sentence at all. Yeah, and before we uh, got on the show, we had a couple of minutes to chat, and you mentioned, well, this is one example, one case, but there are other things that have happened uh, in the past month or six weeks since this incident occurred with these two chain, uh, teenagers. So talk to us about some of the, uh, the, the other cases that are emerging that, that you're involved with. Well, certainly right now there is a national movement to reevaluate mandatory minimum prison sentences um, for mostly nonviolent drug offenses. And um, it's been a very busy couple of weeks here in Washington, D.C. Uh, last uh, Thursday, the Senate, after months of negotiations, announced a new bipartisan bill that would scale back mandatory minimum sentences for uh, many drug offenders and allow many um, drug offenders in federal prison to go back to court and seek shorter sentences um, in line with this new law. Um, that's a positive step forward, and um, and I think uh, is is one more example of how states across the country are recognizing the excesses of um, mandatory minimum sentences. Um, yes. You know, more than 30 states have reformed their mandatory minimum sentencing laws in the last 10 years. Um, including for, for cases like this. Um, uh, Georgia, um, about eight years ago, um, reformed a mandatory minimum sentence for um, what sounds like a, a, a terrible crime, uh, which is uh, sexual assault of a minor. Um, and uh, obviously they, the state legislature wrote that crime in mind, intending to uh, give a 25-year prison sentence to adults who... Uh, sexually, um, who rape who raped children? Um, the problem is, is that there was a 18 year old high school senior who was dating a 15 year old sophomore, and um, he he was charged under that law and was technically an adult um, who, uh, because the 15 is not old enough to consent, uh, had technically under the law raped a child who happened to be his his girlfriend and. Um, he got a 25-year prison sentence and uh, was ultimately the legislature um, created an exception to that law and, and he was ultimately released um, by a clemency. But, um, I, you know, it's a, I think it's a testament that um, states across the country and now the federal government are recognizing that these one-size-fits-all punishments, uh, even when they apply to crimes that sound really scary and bad, can have consequences that we don't intend. Yeah. So what happens is, and I guess uh, this is what your organization is working uh, uh, against, um, we, we have over, overcrowded prisons with these kinds of cases. We're spending a lot of the taxpayers' money on these kinds of cases to put it into a, you know, a financial situation. Um, and then we're, we're spending the time and the money putting these uh, young people uh, into prison when we could be working in uh, putting the monies into prevention programs or refining the laws, I guess. Um, which would be much more productive. Um, where do these laws come from? Are they, 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 they're from the Puritans, or you know, like they? Well, how have they evolved? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think these laws, um, almost all of them, have their genesis in the 1980s and early 1990s when we were very afraid of crime and very afraid of drugs in this country, and uh, the sort of um, tough on crime rhetoric that was prevalent at that time led many lawmakers to think that, you know, the, the only way for me to, to get votes and to show that I'm doing something on this issue is to pass, pass very, very harsh penalties for these crimes. And, um, you know, we're going to crack down on these offenders, and we thought passing these long, harsh, mandatory drug sentences would end drug use and end drug trafficking, and here, 30 years later, we both know that that has not happened and yeah. is Actually, not true. Actually, I think the opposite has happened, hasn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's getting worse, not better, in terms of our drug problems. Well, some, some parts of it are, and um, I, I think, you know, the, the heroin um, problems that are arising in many communities today are a great example, actually, of how these laws don't work. 
we've had long mandatory minimum prison sentences for heroin traffickers for 30 years, and yet we still have uh, a pretty bad heroin problem going on in many of our communities today. So um, that has everything to do actually with prescription drug abuse and addiction and making it harder for people to get those prescription drugs. So now they're turning to heroin instead because it's easier to get, it's cheaper, it's available on the streets. And unfortunately, um, you know, that is a, is a, indeed a very bad drug that causes serious health problems and even death if it's misused. And um, so, yeah, we, we, we tried to punish our way out of our, our drug problems and it didn't work. All right. So, okay, we're talking about drugs, sex, what else? Uh, usually, um, those are the two areas where mandatory minimums are uh, the most popular solutions for lawmakers. Um, the other one would be gun possession. Um, so, uh, you know, again, I mean, this can be a situation where um, people are not necessarily using the gun. Just having a gun um, uh, can get you a long mandatory minimum prison sentence. Uh, one of the stories on our website, um, which is www.fam.org. Um, we have a lot of stories on there of the sort of absurd, unintended consequences of mandatory minimum sentences. Uh, one of those stories is a young man named Weldon Angelos, and Weldon uh, was selling marijuana. Um, he sold about $1,000 of marijuana over the course of um, uh, about a month to an undercover officer. And uh, Weldon was also a lifelong gun enthusiast. Um, he had grown up shooting guns with his father uh, out in Utah. And um, the first time he um, sold drugs, he had a gun on uh, in a holster on his ankle. Never pulled it out or pointed it at anybody or used it. Um, the second drug sale, he, he left the gun in his car and then went out and made the sale. And then the third sale um, happened at his home where he kept his guns in a safe. And uh, the law enforcement uh, arrested him, uh, found the guns in his home, and he received mandatory minimum sentences for those guns. He received five years uh, for the first uh, gun, 25 years for the second gun, 25 years for the third gun. And for those offenses, he got 55 years in federal prison. Um, And... uh, the judge was very upset by this sentence and said, I am giving this young man who never hurt anybody with this weapon, um, I am giving him more time than I would give to an airplane hijacker um, or to someone who raped a child three times. This law makes no sense. And so, um, you know, whether it's, uh, it's the vice areas, guns, sex, and drugs, that we seem to, like, apply mandatory minimum to. Um, I like your idea about the Puritans, though. It's a theory yep. that I have had for a while, is that our Puritan roots, I think, must have something to do with this. Yeah, I think it does. I think it kind of pervades. I mean, that, some of these obvious guns, sex, drugs. Um, but now the gun thing, though, is like such a con. Obviously, can you relate that? Let's say what happened in, in Oregon, you know, the, the killing that just happened, the shooting in Oregon. What, you know, people are going to be on the bandwagon for... Um, mandatory, obviously, well, mandatory sentencing, getting these guns out of the hands of people who are mentally ill. How does that fit into the picture? Well, I, I would say that um, I, I actually see them as very distinct issues. These these shootings, I think, are sort of um, in a class by themselves. Um, for one thing, in a disturbing number of these shootings, the guns are, in fact, owned legally by people who, who don't have prior records um, and uh, so it's, you know, these, these are not people who are um, out there, for example, dealing drugs with a gun um, on, on a street corner, and then they go do a shooting. So, um, and again, though, I would also say that the, the mandatory prison sentences for the gun crimes that we have, have have not stopped the prevalence of guns in our society, the um, fondness for guns in our society, and they have not... Um, reduced gun violence in our society, frankly. So um, I I think these, you know, certainly there are serious crimes committed with guns, and those people will receive serious punishments. They'll be tried in state courts for murder, as they should be, um, and they will, you know, go away for a long period of time, as they they should. Um, uh, But, uh, you know, there 
I, I see the gun possession mandatory minimums, um, like the Weldon Angelo story, as, as being something uh, fairly distinct uh, from, from the kinds of shootings that we've been seeing. So what are you specifically doing? Let's talk about that because, you know, we have a few minutes left at, at uh, FAM, F-A-M-M, um, as their uh, uh, counsel. What, what, what's happening in terms of, uh, you know, very specific things you're doing in each one, I guess, in, uh, across the, the country, in each state? Sure. We um, are running several state campaigns right now. Um, we are working to change Florida's mandatory sentences for drug crimes as well as um, uh, some of their uh, gun crimes. Um, again, for the, the sorts of reasons that I've explained here, um, you know, we are working in Massachusetts to try to take their mandatory minimum sentences for drugs um, off the books. Um, and we are working in Congress to try to pass some of the legislation that uh, has been introduced even in recent weeks up here um, to um, reduce the lengths of some of these um, mandatory minimum sentences for drug crimes. Um, so um, most people wouldn't believe me, but you can actually die in prison, uh, in federal prison, for committing a nonviolent drug offense. Um, and there is a mandatory life sentence for someone who has a third uh, drug conviction in the federal system. It's a three-strikes law for drug offenders and automatic life without parole. And, um, of course, you know, we see some very sad cases here, um, people who have had uh, struggled with addiction for many years. Um, they rack up drug convictions. They're not getting access to the help and treatment that they need, and they end up in federal court and get a life sentence the third time they get convicted. And um, this uh, bill that was just introduced in the Senate last week is called the a sentencing Reform and Corrections Act, um, it would reduce those life penalties down to 25 years. So still an awfully long time to be in prison for a nonviolent drug offense, um, but a vast improvement, and that's exactly the kind of direction we need to be heading in. I think we have to, I mean, the first thing, and I'm listening to all the, you know, with your, your, all this information, like we really have to be, much more aware as a society. I mean, we. I mean, and I guess I want to direct people again to your website because you give very specific examples about what we've been talking about for this past half hour. But famm dot org, right? Uh, so, is that sort of a like for those who are maybe this is the first time they've heard about this? And I think it is for some of my listeners. Is that where we go to first? Yeah, I, I would encourage you to to visit our website, fam dot org. Um, read some of our profiles of prisoners. Um, it, it helps. Uh, there's nothing like a human story to really explain what's wrong with the law in this situation. And um, you can also learn about legislation that's pending in Congress right now. Um, there are links that you can click on to write your members of Congress and tell them you support reforming these laws. Um, and you can learn about our state projects if you're listening from Florida or Massachusetts. Yeah. And boy, I, if I had uh, teenage, I have three boys, they're grown, but boy, if they were in high school or middle school now, I, I mean, I would be <laughs> very interested. I mean, this is, I mean, it's compelling. These stories are are, are, are really horrific. I mean, the, so um, Molly Gill, she's an attorney. Uh, she is FAM's Government Affairs Council, uh, Families Against Mandatory Minimums. And if you want to go to their website, again, it's uh, FAM, F-A-M-M, Dot org. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great to have you. We're going to uh, have to say goodbye now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.